Then the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. For when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. But at midnight there was a cry, Here is the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go rather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. While they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the doors were shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. This is the word of God. Let's go ahead and sit down and we'll pray and ask for the Lord's help in understanding this uh, difficult parable. Lord in heaven, by your providence, by your spirit, you have ordained that this, what we just read, is your holy scripture. And God, I confess before reading it this week, I didn't know what this meant. Never heard a sermon on this before. I usually skip over this. And yet you have given it to us to read and to sanctify us and to to prepare us for Christ's return. So Lord, give us understanding of this word so that we would no longer skim past this one when we get to Matthew chapter 25 in our Bibles. Give us understanding, Lord. And Lord, for those who are here and are sensitive Lord, I pray that you would protect them from discouragement with this difficult text. And Lord, for those who are here who are hardened, soften them so that they may understand and hear the clear warning from our Savior and repent and prepare themselves for Christ's return. Help us, Lord, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's been a little while since we were in Matthew. Uh, We were last in Matthew... uh, sometime around the beginning, middle of June. So we're due for a little bit of review, I think. Some of you uh, have not heard any of, of Matthew's gospel as we've worked our way through it. So let's review a little bit, get our bearings for where we are. We normally, as a church, it's our practice to go through books of the Bible. And we do that gradually, week by week. And so we kind of get cumulative understanding, cumulative knowledge of, of what's happening in the Scriptures. We're going to just review it for you as as the broader story of the gospel goes, the gospel of Matthew, where Matthew's making this argument. This this is a gospel, and so as a gospel, the argument is Jesus is the Messiah. And what Matthew has been doing throughout his gospel is showing us how Jesus fulfills all the prophecies of who Messiah would be. This book is, you could see it as a, a spiritual defense or an apologetic 
of, of Jesus' kingship, his messiahship. And we are now, as we've worked our way through this book, we're now in that message uh, where, where Jesus is on his final approach to the cross. He've worked, he's worked his way down from, from Galilee down to Jerusalem. He's come to Jerusalem. Now he's entered into the city. He's gone into the temple grounds. And there we saw uh, uh, for quite a few weeks, there was this, quite, this debate right between Jesus and the leaders of Judaism. And Jesus got that last word when he pronounced those woes against them because they had rejected him. And then after that pronouncement of woes, Jesus and his disciples left Jerusalem and they went just outside of Jerusalem to an area called the Mount of Olives. He went up the Mount of Olives and he sat down to teach his disciples. And what he was going to teach them and what he did teach them was, was about what was to come, the end times. Things that were coming in the near future and things that are coming in the far future. And if you remember, I know it's been a while, but the first part of that teaching, primarily in chapter 24, was about the judgment of Jerusalem that was to come. Why? Because they had rejected the Christ. And also, that teaching was about the future return of Christ and about the judgment of all the earth. And it was hard to tell, if you remember, when he was talking about the judgment of Jerusalem and when he was talking about the, the judgment of over, over the whole earth, and when he was talking about both. But over and over again, do you remember the message that he had for his disciples? Be ready, be ready, be ready, be prepared. And at the end of Matthew 24, he's still there on the Mount of Olives teaching his disciples, and he told this parable about being prepared for his return. And it was there, if you look at, uh, in Matthew 24, beginning right around verse 45, there was this, the first of what would be three parables. And, and in that parable, there was this faithful and wise servant who continues to care for his master's household. Why? Because he expects his master to return. And then there was this wicked servant who neglected and abused his master's household. Why? Because he didn't expect the master's return. So in, in that parable, Jesus is coming back, and we will give an account, therefore we must be like the wise servant. That's what Jesus' message was, be like the wise servant and not like the wicked servant. In our text this morning, we're still there on the Mount of Olives. So we, we kind of dropped off in June right in the middle of Jesus' sermon, but we're, we're still there right on the Mount of Olives with Jesus, and we're still listening to him talk about his return. We're still listening to him talk about the judgment that is to come and what effect his future judgment should have on our lives now. And so in our parable this morning, in our text this morning, we are in the second of these three parables that talk about his future return. In this parable of the, the ten virgins follows those, or that other parable, but in this parable there's a shift. So previously we had a comparison between the wise servant and the wicked servant. In this parable we have a comparison and contrast between the wise and the foolish. The wise and wicked in the last parable, wise and foolish in this parable. The wicked live as if Jesus would never return, there's no coming judgment. The foolish in this morning's parable Know that Jesus is returning. 
and yet they aren't prepared for his return. That's what we're going to see in this parable. So what I want you to do this morning as we work our way through this parable is just ask the question. This is, this is the intent. They're very simple stories. And what we're supposed to do as we read these is, is ask, well, am I wise or am I foolish? Am I wise or am I foolish? That's it's all. Very simple assignment that we have. So let's look at this parable together. And, and we won't go exclusively verse by verse in this story because it's a story and really, it's really easy to understand the action of the story, isn't it? it it's, it's kind of different. Uh, the language is different, but we still get the idea of what's going on. Uh, it's, a, it's a story that it's meant that children would be able to understand it, but we're looking for the meaning of the story, so that's what our aim is. So, so there's this wedding feast that's about to take place, and, and even today we don't have a whole lot of information about what these weddings were like. We have uh, documents that tell us what Syrian weddings were like and Assyrian weddings were like. We know some of what Egyptian weddings were like and what Indian weddings were like, but we don't know a whole lot about first century weddings in Judea. All the information we have, we're going to get from the parable itself. So, so there's some sort of welcoming parade. Have you gathered that in this wedding? The, the bridegroom is going to arrive. We know he's coming at some point, and there's a welcoming parade uh, that, that welcomes him in as they go into the wedding feast. And in this parade are these young women. The Greek word that is translated virgins here just means young, unmarried women. Some in, in history, so Jerome, for instance, one of the historical writers, one of the early church fathers, he really focused in on the virgins here. It's not really the point of the story. Uh, so, so just think of these young, unmarried women. We don't know exactly how these women are chosen for the wedding party, whether it's they're chosen by the groom or whether uh, his family chooses these, these young ladies or they're friends of the bride. We don't know exactly. Regardless of the details, we know one thing about these women. And all of us, we know. We know that they have a really important job. Have you seen that meme, you had one job? or that, 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 that They have one really important job, and that one job is to greet the arriving groom and escort him into the wedding feast. They, they are a part of the wedding procession. right? So just for simplicity's sake and, and so that we don't get so caught up in the word virgin, let's just call them bridesmaids. Can we do that? I'm not avoiding a difficult term. It's just... It's easier for us to understand what's going on if we just call these ladies bridesmaids. But remember, they're young, they're, un, they're unmarried. And that just helps us understand it a little later. One, one more important thing. Since this processional of the, the groom coming into the feast, since this usually happens in the evening, these bridesmaids are expected to have lamps or torches or some sort of oil-fueled light to light his way into the party. All right, so that's it. That's about the extent of what we know about these weddings and about the attendance. We get it all from the text. And we can gather, though, can't you, you imagine, the people who are listening to Jesus teach this parable, they know what these weddings are like. They know everything he's talking about. The people that Matthew is writing to, they know what these weddings are about. They, this is their culture. They understand everything. So it's common knowledge for the original audience it's not common knowledge for us, but that's okay because everything we need to know is here, all right? Well, let's just put that, well, there's a welcoming party. Their one job is to be prepared to light the way for the groom's arrival, all right? So we're all in agreement. So in this parable, there are 10 of these women, 10 bridesmaids, 
who have been assigned this task. Why 10? Looking for some mysterious answer? I don't know. It's, it's, it doesn't say. The text doesn't tell us why 10. It's a nice round number. You can have five on one side, five on the other. Five of these young bridesmaids are wise, they're considered wise, and five of them are foolish. But in most every other aspect, when you look at them, they're identical. Externally, you see bridesmaids. They, they all have the same lamps. They're all intermingled together as they're waiting. They're all waiting in the same place. They're all waiting together for the groom to arrive so they can escort him. They all get tired. They all fall asleep. So, so however long they've been waiting, they've been indistinguishable from one another. There's, of course, one very important difference, isn't there? We'll talk about that in a moment. That difference is really the point of the parable. But the first thing I want you to see uh, about these bridesmaids is their similarity. Most importantly, they are similar in what they are waiting for. They're all waiting for the bridegroom. And that is our interpretive key. We are to understand from this parable that the bridegroom is Christ. It's Jesus. This waiting for the groom is representative of waiting for the future return of Christ. And to be clear, when we say future return of Christ, this is not talking about a secret rapture. The last parable that we had last time and the next parable and the summary after all of this, this is all in the context of final judgment day. All right, so this is not some secret rapture. This is final judgment day, the return of Christ, visible for all. Now, let me just ask, as we're working our way through our understanding of the parable, who is waiting for the return of Christ? Christians, right? Or at least people who claim to be Christians. The return of Christ in judgment is a very basic Christian belief. Jesus is divine. He died for our sins. He rose again. He's coming back. You know, he ascended into heaven. He's coming back. We repeat it every week because it's basic Christian belief. If you do not believe in the future return of Christ and the resurrection from the dead and the judgment, then you're not a Christian, right? If you don't believe these things, you're not a Christian because this is orthodox Christianity, little o, orthodox, little c, Catholic. This is Christianity. This is what we all believe. First order Christian issues here. Jesus is coming back. So who are the bridesmaids who are waiting for him to come back? Well, this is us. This is the church. We are the people awaiting Christ's return. We are the people anticipating his return. We are the people whose job it is to celebrate his return when he comes. And we have the privilege of going into the feast upon his revival, uh, arrival, arrival. Pray, pray for revival. We go in upon his arrival. And what Jesus is showing us here is that some of us are wise and some of us are foolish. Why are the wise considered wise? Because they have taken the information that they know and they're applying it to their lives. That's what wisdom is. And why are the foolish foolish? Because even though they know that the day is coming, they're not prepared. They've taken the knowledge that they have, and they don't do anything with it. That's what foolishness is, isn't it? 
The wise will be welcomed into the wedding feast. The foolish will have the door closed upon them. And yet, all of us right now, all of us right now as we wait, all of us believe that we're getting in. Are you seeing this? Because this is really important. This is what Jesus wants us to see here. This is the point of the parable. All of us are awaiting his return. All of us believe that we're going into the wedding feast with him. Some of us will be welcomed in and some of us will be not, will, will not be. Both the wise and the foolish believe they're getting in, but only the wise will be permitted. This is a hard teaching, isn't it? But as we've seen, this is not new. How many times in Matthew's gospel have we seen these comparisons between people who think that they're following Jesus and people who are actually following Jesus? We can go all the way back to the Sermon on the Mount, his first teaching. He said that there are some who are on the narrow road. Remember that? Only some, only a few are on the narrow road who will go through the narrow gate to life. And there are many, 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 many more who are on that broad road to destruction. And here's the thing. And we, this is several years ago now. But, but, we, but Jesus was teaching then that everybody on that broad road believed themselves to be on the road to salvation. They have the same sense of assurance, the same confidence that the narrow road believers have. But only one of those groups gets in. And then we, we continued there from, from Matthew 7 to the next part of Matthew 7. There were those people in, in Matthew chapter 7 who called upon the name of the Lord. Do you remember then? Matthew 7, 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. Does that verse sound familiar to our text this morning? Lord, 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 Lord. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. That's what he said to the bridesmaids, isn't it? I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. These people live their entire lives believing themselves to be Christians. Like these bridesmaids, they were even anticipating Christ's return. And yet they were turned away. Or think back to the man later on who, who wanted to follow Jesus. The very beginning of Jesus' ministry. He wanted to follow Jesus, but he had some things he wanted to take care of first. I'll follow Jesus later. But first I've got to take care of my family. I've got to bury my father. Remember that? He believed Jesus was Messiah. But when Jesus called him to this life of radical faithfulness, I've got other priorities. Jesus was important to him. Jesus was not that important to him. Or think back to the rich young ruler. Do you remember him? He was obeying the law, keeping the law in every respect except for just maybe one. He, he was outwardly very, very good. He was ethical. He had a great reputation. Everyone loved him. People believed him to, to be, of all people, he was the one on the way to salvation because it appeared that he had God's blessing, but he lacked something. Do you remember what that was? His heart was not fully, fully devoted to Christ. He had split allegiance 
And when it came down to it, his primary allegiance was to his wealth. He was turned away. Or back in chapter 13, there was the parable of the soils, and the seed that was in the shallow, rocky soil sprang up quickly. That is, there was at first a, a, a joyous reception of the gospel. They made a profession of faith. They were excited about Jesus, excited about eternity with him. And there was all this emotion at the beginning. But then there was no perseverance in the faith. The difficulties of life came. Their faith just shriveled up like a raisin. Their, their faith lacked the depth of true Saving, lasting faith. A faith that endures to the end. Jesus' teaching is full of these examples. These, these, these examples of false assurance, half-hearted confessions, and false conversions. In fact, I think as, as we've read Matthew's gospel, I think I can say with confidence that there are more warnings in Matthew's gospel about those who presume upon God's grace than there are warnings against outright, outright wickedness. See what I'm saying by that? This is more a concern for Matthew's telling of the gospel because of whatever he's seeing in his local church than he is concerned about people who are acting just completely worldly. This half-hearted Christianity is dangerous. So the question then, if Jesus is repeating this theme over and over and over again throughout this gospel, if he's teaching us that there is a very real category of church people who are in very real danger, what all of us should be asking, what makes the difference? What's the difference? Don't you want to know? Because I don't want to be the foolish bridesmaid. I want to be the wise bridesmaid. I don't want to be the second type of shallow soil. I want to be deep soil. What's the difference between the two? What's the difference between a true Christian with saving faith and someone who is just wishful thinking, right? Foolish bridesmaid with false assurance. What Jesus wants us to do here, I know this sounds weird, but what he wants us to do is Jesus wants to cause you to question your assurance of salvation. And you think, oh, no, Dustin, no. Jesus wants us to have assurance. He doesn't want us to doubt. Listen, though, if your assurance is in something that cannot save you, something that will not save you on that day, then leading you to doubt your false assurance is the most loving and gracious thing that Jesus could do, isn't it? What kind of, what kind of awful would your mechanic be if, if you took your car to the, to the shop to get new tires put on and he sees, yeah, these brakes are going to fail any day now. But he doesn't want to hurt your feelings. So he just puts the tires on and gives you the car back. Because he doesn't want to put you in a hard place. He doesn't want to make you think too hard. Or how, how bad is the doctor who sees in you at your checkup signs of cancer and, and yet wants to be thought of as nice? So he doesn't say anything to you. How, how much more 
How much more so is the love of Jesus? More loving than your mechanic. More loving than your doctor. He is the author of our salvation. How much more of a right does he have to warn you and to teach you how to follow him? Amen? Jesus is inviting us here this morning the same way that the Spirit invites the Corinthian church. 2 Corinthians 13.5. Examine yourselves, Paul says to the church, to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless you fail to meet the test? This is a test. None of us wants to live our entire lives as foolish bridesmaids, anticipating the return of Christ and then turned away on the last day. And because none of us wants to meet that end, Jesus, our loving, our merciful Savior, gives us a gracious warning here. A warning, even today, that is meant to redirect you and challenge you and prepare you to truly follow him. So, I ask again, what's the difference between those who are wisely anticipating the return of Christ and those who do so as fools? Well, Matthew 25, verse 2 and 4 through 4 tells us it's the oil. Five of them were foolish, five of them were wise, for when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. The wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. So, so they're all going out to, to wherever it is they're supposed to meet the bridegroom. We don't know, but it's not important. And they all have their lamps. The wise have oil and the foolish do not. And, and that word that is translated lamps here is actually the word that we get lamp from. It's lampano, so lamp. Uh, but it's not the same word that in the Bible is used to describe those indoor lamps. All right, so the lamps that were typically inside houses, the one that many of us have probably seen pictures of, are these, they look like little gravy boats, and there's a reservoir of, of oil or for the oil, and then a little wick at the end, kind of going down through a spout. Those lamps aren't meant to be carried around. You would spill oil all over the place. It'd be a mess, be fiery. So that's not what they used here. The, the lamps that these women would have used were, were different than that. They were probably something more like, this is a rough analogy, but something more like a tiki torch where you've got the, the, the pole and then the, the vessel of oil and then the wick in the top, or possibly some of your translations actually say torch. And so think that Indiana Jones style torch where you've got a stick with cloth wrapped around the end, dipped in oil, and then and you burn the oil. Either way, it's the oil that's important. Whether it's a torch or a tiki torch, it's the oil that's really important here. If you're just burning the wick, what happens? Well, it burns for just a moment and then it's, and it's out. The wise bridesmaids are considered wise because they know, they know that the groom is coming and they know that the wait for the groom could be long. And so they brought as much oil as they thought they would need for a long wait. They brought an extra flask of oil. The foolish bridesmaids did not bring any extra oil. And it's hard to tell from the text, but it's possible they didn't bring any oil at all. The foolish were counting on whatever it is they had at the beginning, whatever was in that wick, to get them all the way through the waiting. That's the difference. The wise are prepared for the long wait, 
the long Christian life. And the fools are counting on whatever they had at the beginning to last them all the way through Christ's return, all the way until Christ's return. And what's the outcome of the foolish, wishful thinking? There's a loud shout announcing the groom's arrival. Everybody wakes up. This might just be a a metaphor for resurrection day. Either way, time to get the lamps ready, right? Light them up. And what happens in verses 8 and 9? The foolish bridesmaids' lamps, or either just wicks or torch cloth, whatever they are, they go out very quickly, as expected. So they can't light the way for the groom when he comes. They have no oil. What do they do? They beg the wise. Some of your oil. What's the problem? Well, if the wise bridesmaids share, there won't be enough for all of them. All of their lights will go out, and the groom will have no light to welcome his arrival. So the wise have to do the only thing they can do. They have to tell the foolish, you've got to go get your own. And while they were going to buy the oil, verse 10, the bridegroom comes. Those who are ready, key word, those who were ready, went in with him into the marriage feast. The door was shut. Afterward, the others came, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, truly I say to you, I do not know you. And that word, that phrase, I do not know you, you heard it back in Matthew chapter 7, didn't you? You did many, many mighty works in your name. I'll know you. And that's it. There's no negotiating here, is there? There's no back and forth between the, the, the groom and, and these, these women who are, are, are put out. There's no borrowing. There's no extra time given to them. There's no excuses allowed. The time came that they had been anticipating. They knew it was coming, and yet they had nothing to show for themselves. No oil to light the lamps with because they're foolish. And think about it. They had all the same information, didn't they? Foolish bridesmaids had the same information that the wise bridesmaids had. They had been instructed in the exact same way for how to prepare. They knew what their task was. That's why they were there. They knew. And for whatever reason, they chose to wing it rather than to prepare for themselves, prepare themselves for the day that they knew was coming. And Jesus doesn't tell us exactly why they behave this way. He just says that they're foolish. But, but he leaves the interpretation open to us because there are many, many reasons why many of us think that we can wing it. Why many of us 